Good evening and uh, welcome to our Bible study. Last time uh, we came to the end of Acts uh, 13, uh, which uh, brought us halfway uh, on Paul and Barnabas' uh, first missionary journey. And today uh, we shall continue uh, that journey uh, to hopefully, if we if we are being if we are efficient, we will get uh, all the way uh, to the end of the first missionary journey. Let's open with prayer, though. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the way of salvation that Jesus has opened up for us by His perfect life, His innocent suffering and death, and by His resurrection. We thank you that that the way of salvation has been proclaimed to us through your word and your word still resounds among us. Grant us the grace of your Holy Spirit to learn afresh of your love and of your will for our lives, that we might be refreshed in faith, in hope and in love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's uh, begin by reminding ourselves of um, where we are in on the map. That is <clears throat> so. Paul's first uh, missionary uh, journey uh, starts with the blue arrow. Blue arrow is outward bound, and uh, he in in chapter thirteen we had arrived. At Antioch in Pisidia, and from Antioch in Pisidia, uh, Paul and Barnabas travelled on to Iconium, which is where we uh, pick up the story. Now, <clears throat> so have a look at it quickly. So Antioch in Pisidia, uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then the return journey back from Antioch in Pisidia, and then not to, uh, and then back to um, a different port, Atalia, and from there to Antioch in Syria, where they came from. I hope you've got that memorized now, because we're going to come across some place names in a moment. But I do please note that the, they trace their steps back, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and then back home again. That's the key movement in this chapter, from Antioch to Derby and back. Uh, any questions or comments on that before we get started? Good. Well, let's, in that case, let's get started. And, uh, if we could read, please, uh, <clears throat> uh, the first, uh, seven verses only. So if somebody liked, would like to read, but not very much, jump in quickly. Uh, yeah, Acts 14, 1 to 7. Thank you. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Jews, Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. 
Okay. Uh, first, very uh, brief point. You see that there's, we talk about quite an extensive period of time and quite a lot of activity which have been condensed into one paragraph <coughs> and in modern parlance is seven verses. So uh, there is an awful lot going on here which we don't really hear about. We don't have any of the details. Um, I was reminded of this not long ago, uh, reading through um, Mark's Gospel. And in Mark's Gospel, we have things like, well, if you've been if you've been following any of the morning devotions, you will have heard some of this uh, recently. But um, the <clears throat> the way that we're told that Jesus, as was his custom, taught the people, and then moves on to the next verse and to the next act. So there's a lot of action, and said Jesus taught the people. Jesus preached. Uh, at one point, he preached for three days, for example. Uh, but we're not told what he preached or what he taught, except occasionally little things like the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. Um, and then you read John's gospel and Jesus is a completely, you know, John sounds completely different. He talks, talks and talks and talks and does very little. And of course, what we see there is that um, Mark and to slightly less degree, um, Matthew and Luke present to us Jesus mostly in action with some teaching details of teaching because the teaching is actually being done for the church, not by the evangelists in the gospel, but by the apostles in the preaching. Whereas John writing maybe to, uh, sort of half a generation later as um, <clears throat> potentially as the kind of last surviving apostle, he commits some of this teaching in more detail uh, to writing. So we've got this uh, often the Bible kind of gives us these, Brief glimpses, but if we really just scratch at the surface, we still find them. We have uh, an awful lot of information. A lot, an awful lot is going on that we never get told. You know, we've got the letters of Paul, but you look at his career in teaching and preaching, and I thought, well, it's a pretty poor haul if you wanted to get kind of the complete works of Paul to get, you know, the the thirteen letters, and that's it. And so I just wanted to point that out, that there is, you know, we're talking about them staying there for a long time. We don't know how long, what a long time is, but I'm sure it's, we're talking about sort of, uh, possibly weeks, who knows, weeks, months, um, who knows? We don't know. Now, uh, what do you note about this description here? Interesting, their, their reaction to um, opposition initially was just to stay, sort of carry on. Okay, so now this time, you remember the Antioch, they uh, came into, op uh, ran into opposition and eventually they left and shook the dust off their feet. Um, here they, they so don't immediately, um, uh, immediately leave. Uh, when do they leave? Only when they hear of, yeah, basically a threat of some serious violence. Okay, not, they're about to problem. be thrown. They're about to get into a serious difficulty and, uh, and trouble, and then that's when they leave. When they, uh, you know, it gets too hot, if you like, and they move on. And we see here again the same pattern that we've been seeing ever since uh, the death of Stephen. That persecution, opposition, is the instrument that God uses to spread the gospel. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, and I've, I know I've made this point more than once before, but it's just worth, I, well, I, mean, I don't know if it's worth it. I'd like to drill into it because it, I think, I personally think it's an, an important thing to note. We like to think that we are successful when we're successful. And when people receive us and receive the gospel, that's when the kingdom of God is advancing. In, book of, in the book of Acts, it's often the other way around. 
Some people receive, but the way that the gospel spreads is by being rejected, which then forces uh, uh, Christians to travel somewhere else. And in this case, Paul and Barnabas specifically, you know, they stay in town. They don't say, that we, you know, we're going to try and cover six, um, you know, six cities or ten cities on this trip. So let's let's get this place done and move on. No, they start teaching and when they receive, they stay. And they stay as long as they are welcome, if you like, and then they move on. It's only the, the if you like, the more strategic, uh, long-term, try to cover the whole world kind of thinking, enters into Paul's my, um, thinking much later on. So we see it in someone like Romans. I've been everywhere already. I covered the Gentile world. I haven't been to Rome, so I want to come to Rome, but I really want to go to Spain because I want to go somewhere where the gospel hasn't been yet. But that's later on. That's pro, uh, I'm, you know, it's, it's difficult to date the, these things with certainty, but we are, we are talking about decade later at least. So at this stage, they just stay and then they move when they have been told. But what, by the time they move, what have they left behind? A church. A church. Uh, uh. And that's really important to note again, is that they left behind a church. They haven't just, you know, um, they haven't just sort of said their piece. Uh, but the, you know, mission work consists of the establishment of churches. And if it doesn't consist of that, it's, I would argue, it's not biblically speaking mission work yet. Now, sometimes it's not successful and it doesn't happen. But that's that's always the goal. You're trying to bring people. And what does the word church mean? What's the biblical word church? Ecclesia, gathering. Yeah, it's a gathering, it's assembly. Called out ones or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the technical term, as, as it, in Greek, the word ecclesia is, is, is a technical term for an assembly. It's the sort of thing, you know, if you have a town meeting or a council meeting, that's an ecclesia and the church. So, so you know, there's the old cliche, there's no such thing as solitary Christianity. And that's true by definition, not just by accident or, you know, it's not a coincidence. It's, it's, it's the definition of a Christian is somebody who's a member of the assembly of the gathering. And so that's what the aim of the, uh, mission work. Anything else that you, that you notice about that passage? That... Uh, Paul speaking in a way, in such a way that both Jews and Greeks, uh, so his sermon, I don't know how he adapted his sermon that it's, so I don't know how, if he went to the, so it's the scriptures and history or what so that also or maybe these were Greek who had been attending the synagogue but they knew the history yeah I mean he, 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 Paul was able to to preach in a way that it yeah. yeah so this is, this is this is take place in the synagogue and I was hoping that somebody might just point that the obvious thing out they go to the synagogue again mm. that's where they go they don't go looking they go to the marketplace uh, but to the synagogue where there are already people who believe now we will see a different uh, set up a little bit later on, but this is what happens because there is Arconium, clearly there is a synagogue there, and he goes there and I love that, as he points out, he's, he spoke in such a way that so it's about, you know, again, he, you know this is faith, we've, we've been learning throughout Acts that faith uh, and uh, comes as a, uh, is, is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's about the spirit, God's word doing its work, but of course the word of God comes in human form it comes through speakers and so there is clearly a you know that it doesn't mean that you know we just can we just say any sort of gobbledygook and the holy spirit does what he does but but the if you like the ability of the preacher to preach or to, uh, to preach in such a way as to reach those who are heard is important this is why the only skill that is required 
when Paul writes later in it towards the end of his life, writes to Timothy about um, the choosing of uh, elders for churches, the only skill that is required is the ability to teach. You know, you don't have to be good with kids and, you know, and, 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 and with the grannies or, or, you know, good, uh, you know, able to run a church website as well as, or be married to somebody who's willing to become a, an unpaid assistant or whatever, you know, none of those things actually appear. No, you have to have a, you know, con- uh, to have an honorable, honorable in your life, uh, live a holy life and be with an you know, above reproach in your conduct and be able to teach. And this is why. Because you want the word to not just leave your mouth, but also land in your audience. So that if people reject it, they know what they're rejecting. You know, there's, there's nothing worse than somebody who acts like a complete idiot and calls that persecution. Except perhaps somebody who is unable to put together a coherent sentence and then says that people are hard of hearing. When actually they're just hard of speaking. And so, uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of, uh, I, again, it's, what we are, what Christians, you know, what I'm, I'm, I always tell people, I'm telling you again, just in case it ever becomes relevant, always seek people who are able to preach the gospel in such a way that it actually is the gospel to you, for you, not just information, not, you know, and, and the ability to teach and to preach is so, so important. And it's, I've, I'm afraid to say that it's, it's often undervalued in the church. Now we look for other things, things that make us, you know, things that we think are important. But this is this is the thing that things that make us feel good, or feel good, or or just you know ticks our agenda. We might have some kind of a vision, vision, or or an idea of what our church, you know, we, what kind of a church we'd like to be. I mean, our our website hasn't the content. A lot of our website hasn't changed in in ten years. I mean, there are some things that haven't changed in ten years. Uh, just for lack of manpower, but one of the things that we put on our website when he first set it up was something that we are a friendly something, I can't remember what it is, we're a friendly something church. Uh, and uh, for some years now, I've I've been meaning to put that friendly much further down the paragraph. <laughs> because I, it's not our friendship that we want people to come and experience. I mean, we want, you know, we want to be friendly, but that's not really the point. <laughs> Uh, rather, we want people to be, meet the friendship of Jesus. And so we move we're, on to... We're a Christ-facing church. Yeah. And then there's oh. some, some, word you can play, some word you can play with. Well, how about uh, confessional Lutheran church, so, you know, with a high view of the scriptures or something? That would that would be a good selling point, wouldn't it? Uh, <clears throat> I have had people contact me and said, are you confessional? Because I don't see anything on your website, which is always a bit, uh, a bit worrying, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I say yes. Um no but they always see what we see here is a, a, again a consistent pattern since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, since the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, and throughout the whole of the Old Testament as well, the division. Again, it's something that we are very allergic to often in the modern church. Is, is division? We want people. To, anybody who causes division is therefore um, suspect or perhaps faulty. But throughout the ministry of Jesus, throughout the ministry of, of the apostles, and certainly throughout the, uh, the ministry of the, the, the Old Testament prophets too, people are divided. Some believe, some reject. And here we see it again. You just want to make sure that people are divided. They're divided over the gospel, not over you or some other thing, you know, the color of the carpet that you chose. Um, and 
they stirred up the Gentiles and pointed their minds against the brothers. So you see that we've got believing Jews and Gentiles, and they've got unbelieving Jews who are pointing the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. So they're not just not listening for themselves, but this is just what Jesus said. Do you remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? That you will know that they you will not enter the kingdom of God, and you will prevent others from entering. Well, you, you cross the land and the sea to make someone twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's that sort of language he used. Yeah, about. so the, the idea is, you know, that again, that they not only are they themselves un, unbelieving, but they prevent other people from uh, believing by poisoning their minds against <laughs> against the gospel. So there, you see that there is again the the gospel attracts hostility. And the hostility grows, and we'll see as this hostility grows. So we are in Iconium, remember. And, and, but you know, there is no, no arg, no, no record of an argument here going, you know, Paul doesn't think go, and Barnabas, they don't go and come and take them on and try to unpoison their minds. They simply remain for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. And God accompanies their preaching with signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And notice that again, there's no attention drawn to them, except for the fact that they exist. And God still does uh, wondrous uh, things. Just this afternoon, I received an email. We've been praying for about four years uh, for a family, a refugee family or family in this uh, in this area who, who have been seeking refugee status because they're Pakistani Christians who have been informed that if they return to Pakistan, uh, they are in danger. And uh, again and again and again and again, they, their application has been rejected by the home office and the local churches have both funded their campaign and prayed and prayed and prayed and just this afternoon they received a letter saying that it has been granted now that sounds like that sounds like a bureaucratic uh victory but you say well we have been praying you know god god you know we should be encouraged by this god does hear our prayers and he does he doesn't and things do still happen usually not in public but sometimes in public as well because god is not impotent He's powerful and he's able to do all kinds of things. But here we see that where we have this division, God, he says, he granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands because that was his witness to the word of his grace. Can you see how much the spotlight is completely, you know, if the spotlight is really away from the persons of Paul and Barnabas, their hands are almost like, the, the hands of Paul and Barnabas are like sort of, this sort of just conduits for the work of God. And that's the proper way to understand when signs and wonders when they do happen. You know, Although not, it does validate their apostolic ministry. Say that again. It does validate their apostolic ministry. Though. And it validates, it validates the truth of their, I mean, in this case, it validates the truth of their words. I have to warn you, I'm not a cessationist. If you are, then we're going to have to have a conversation another time. <laughs> Because the Bible, but the Bible doesn't, uh, to my my mind, the Bible doesn't say that these things will cease, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't tie it to the apostolicity. It it's, it ties the signs one to the truth of the word. Barnabas, everybody, and Barnabas is, is certainly not an apostle, and Paul's apostleship is different in character, if you like, in some ways, from the other apostles. But nevertheless, the point is that there is, you know, these things are being done by God through them, as a testament to the truth of the word the word of his grace not the word of his power not the word of his judgment no no it's the grace 
And again, this is this is an, something that you know because there are a lot of people that uh, have always have been, and there are again in our time a lot of people who claim to be acting for God and the God is working through them and so on. And always ask yourself: Is this working to bear witness to the Word of God's grace, or is this? Or what is it, what is it pointing to? And that's always a really good way of beginning to discern as to whether to, uh, you know, begin to trust such a thing or not. So how else do we know? And, and don't just say, if somebody says, I'm doing this in Jesus' name, well, you won't be the first one. We'll, we'll come across somebody later on who claims to be acting in Jesus' name as well. Um, Jesus, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. No. Don't listen, no, don't just listen to that, the formulae of their words, but actually, what is the ministry about? And if it's a healing ministry, well, that doesn't exist in the Bible. There is no such thing as a healing ministry in the Bible. God performs healing through Jesus. Uh, no, it, it, Jesus performs healing and Jesus uh, and the apostles and other, you know, heal through God's word by God's power. But those are not healing ministries. Jesus didn't come to perform a healing ministry. And so it's, you know, going to keep your, keep always keep the eye, your eye on the ball and don't get, don't get, uh, so distracted by the verbiage or the razzmatazz around what's actually going on. So where is Jesus here? Where's the word of God's grace? Where's the gospel of salvation? That means that you're getting something more than that your sore leg is no longer sore or that your cancer's gone, but actually where's the eternal life here? Because that's really what we are after. I mean, if, if, if I can cure your cancer but leave you to eternal death, then I, I think you've got a really raw deal, even though it might seem really nice at the time. And just today we had a funeral of a dear church member who died of cancer. <clears throat> but the thing is, he didn't die. <laughs> That's the great thing. You know, we, and we prayed for his healing and God decided that this time he wouldn't, I mean, he's, this time he wouldn't survive this particular illness. But he already had died with Christ and therefore he lives with Christ. And that's a, but you know, he, you know, Reggie's much better off in that setting than that he would be better from his cancer but not knowing God's grace and so we have this division which eventually leads to temperature rising enough they leave town for Lystra and Derby uh, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding country and there they continue to preach the gospel so again there's a considerable amount of activity that's been condensed into a couple of words they are traveling Alistra and Derby, which are two neighboring towns, but they're not, you know, there's, there's travel involved and there are other, other villages or smaller, smaller towns around there as well. So there's a lot going on that we don't know about. We basically take a shortcut straight on to Lystra. And so ask yourself as we read these things, why of all the things that have happened since they arrived or since they left Iconium, why is this being told to us? Why are, we, why are we not being told about any of the other sermons or events? Why this? Well, obviously, we don't know what those other things are. But again, what are we learning from this particular uh, incident? Which we can say, you know, this took a place of an afternoon or a morning, whatever it is, of what must have been, I would guess, several weeks of activity. So this is not representative of the ministry, but this happened in the midst of the ministry. Is anybody keen to read? Um, we could uh, split it in half if you want. Um, 
but uh, so uh, blah, blah, blah. yeah. So uh, next bit is uh, eight to eighteen. Whoever wants to go, that would be good, and we'll do the next bit after that. I'll do it. <clears throat> now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own days, yet he did not leave himself without witnesses, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Thank you. Okay. Now here we have a completely different audience. What's, what's missing from this account that we've been seeing so far? The synagogue? The synagogue. We have no synagogue here at all. Now yeah, I- They're preaching to outright Gentiles. Yeah, these, these are outright Gentiles. These are pagans. They're not God-fearing Gentiles. They're not- and uh, I haven't, I, I confess uh, openly here uh, that I haven't gone and researched into the history of first century Lystra to find out whether there ever was a synagogue there, but it would seem not. Um, if, you, if you know better, then, then, then let me know. But there is no evidence that there is one. So it's, it's a Gentile city without a sufficient Jewish population. But there they are. Now you remember the Lystra and Derby. Lystra is quite close to Iconium. Derby is much further away. So there's some kind of a kind of toing and froing going on here that we don't, uh, we haven't again uh, been told about particularly. Um, but they're presumably they're on their way back from Derby by this time, uh, if yeah, um, having having been to both places. So they. Come from Lystra because uh, later on we read that uh, Paul met Timothy Timothy in Lystra, so I presume he lived there. And, and Timothy's mother was Christian, as was his grandmother. Yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have. I mean, there there may have been a synagogue. I I I I personally don't know. As I said, I I didn't. I decided not to look that up, or I didn't decide. To, didn't decide to look it up. But um, that in itself doesn't mean that there was a synagogue there, because for a synagogue you need ten uh, Jewish men. men. Yeah, I don't mean that. I didn't mean that. I just said that when did she become a? When did uh, Timothy's mother become a Christian? Because this is the first time Paul went there. Or the yeah. So, oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. This is. Pr- uh, oh. There's a very good chance that this is it. This is when. Mm. Mm. Uh, because you know they they won't have this is this is uh, if you like virgin territory for the gospel. Yeah, yeah. So this is a good example of how you know we we have all these things that you know you can tie things together of 
if you like the we we meet real characters even though they're not introduced to us so yes there is i mean this is this would have been the first uh first time unless they had been to, uh, at the Jerusalem at Pentecost so obviously yes i mean but again um you know the, the, it is more likely especially since they had uh, at least Timothy's father we don't know about Timothy's uh grandfather but we know that Timothy's father was not Jewish he hadn't been circumcised mm. and therefore the likelihood that there would have been a mill pilgrim with Jerusalem I think is at least uh, diminished by that it's less likely but thank you for the observation now <clears throat> what does this story remind you of Well, Peter peeling the um, a lame man. Exactly. So this is, if I like, this is a, this is the, uh, if you like, Paul's turn, uh, Paul and Barnabas's turn uh, to be uh, channels of the same work that God did through Peter and John. So we have Peter and John, where Peter's the spokesperson, John's there with him as a sidekick, if you like. Here we have the same thing with Paul and Barnabas. And which, of course, again, we have a crippled man and uh, you choose your gospel, whether you want to think about the paralyzed man lowered through the roof in Capernaum or whether you want to choose the paralyzed man who is at the um, at the pool in Jerusalem. Uh, but Jesus also has a bit of a track record when it comes to healing the paralyzed. And of course, this is linked very closely to uh, the messianic prophecies in Isaiah: "The lame shall walk, lame shall leap for joy." In fact, is the is the phrase uh, in Isaiah uh, that when when God restores Israel, that's what will happen. Isaiah, the blind will be opened, and 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 one of them is the lame shall uh, leap for joy. Um, now. Uh, Barbara, you are a, you are a trained midwife, so tell us about what somebody who hasn't been able to, who's been uh, uh, crippled or, uh, from birth or lame from birth. Oh, she's just disappeared. I hope that wasn't. I, I hope that was internet problems rather than my being upset. Get her I used to live in a country where there were a lot of beggars uh, in the cities and towns, and, uh, and they involved included people who had limbs that looked like they'd never been used. I knew someone who was, um, I think the umbilical cord had been wrapped around his arm. And um, so he was born with a withered hand because of that. Yeah. And you can imagine that kind of difficult birth, breech birth and things that there would have been cases where, uh, you know, the pelvises or, 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 or leg bones have been damaged or even spines been damaged in the process of birth. And before modern medicine, that was it. You know, if, 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 if that happened at birth, then that was it for the rest of your life. Um, and so the, here was, I mean, we obviously don't know the backstory, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a tragedy. He's continuing sitting there. Uh, we're not told that he was a beggar, are we? But it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a very good chance if he's sitting there in the public place, that's what he would have been, you know, likely rather than taking in the sun. Or just watching the crowd going past. And Paul was speaking. Again, we're not told where, but it clearly this is out in the open somewhere. So this is now where there is no synagogue. Paul is out, out and about. And he's speaking. Um, are you ever embarrassed by street corner preachers? Yes. 
Especially one to only use the King James Bible. Well, <laughs> St. Paul was one. <laughs> I remember, I remember I was, uh, years and years ago, I was, um, talking with my dad and I'd come across some, one of those hell, uh, you know, so brimstone and fire, um, uh, street crime preachers and I felt quite embarrassed by the whole thing. And I said to, said to my dad, said, oh, just another street corner preachers. I was so embarrassed. You know, these people give such a bad name to Christianity. I said, oh, I don't know. It depends. As he remembers sitting in, it was in Frankfurt or some airport anyway. And there was somebody there who was doing this sort of thing. I said, you know, I listened to him and actually what he said was really, really good. He was on this sort of seven minute loop roughly, uh, where he then he repeated himself and said, actually, if anybody stopped to hear, they heard the gospel. And that's got to be a good thing, right? <laughs> okay, that, 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 that learned me. Um, you know, that, uh, it's actually, you know, we, if, if you're against street corner preaching, then you're going to have to have some words with Paul and, and Peter when you get, when you get to heaven, because, uh, they, they, they too let us down a bit by, by making spectacles on themselves in public. And they didn't get very well treated either, uh, very often for their troubles. Um, but there, there is, but here's these, uh, we see this sort of thing that again, we've got, Paul is very clearly being cast in, in Jesus-like kind of fashion here. Paul looking intently at him, which is the sort of thing that Jesus does. He's looking intently. Um, no, so Paul saw that he was listening. Um, and, uh, seeing that he had faith to be made well. Now that should give us a bit of a clue as to what sort of things Paul might have been saying, uh, but there's at least that at least there's something about his words that would have given hope. So Paul could see the lights coming on in a way, I suppose. Yes, but the thing is that again, you know, when I I read this and say, if somebody in that position was sitting, uh. When I was preaching, would they get the same kind of faith from what I was saying? I said, not necessarily every Sunday, certainly. But there is a thing, you know, that we, we have this, always the danger of not over, but falsely spiritualizing the gospel and say, it's just about matters of faith, meaning it's nothing to do with life here now or with our bodies or things like that. It's just about what, you know, thinking the right thought about Jesus and waiting for heaven. And that's simply not how Jesus himself functioned. And that's simply not what the, what the, what the Bible says, because the Bible speaks of the gospel as ushering in a new creation of making all things well. You know, he makes all things well, not just giving us some hope for when things shall be made well, but actually he does make things all, all things well. And therefore we can expect that when we pray the fourth petition of the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And if we kind of expand it in the way that the catechism does to include, you know, clothing, shoes, house, home, drink, food, drink, uh, health, peace, faithful neighbours, good rulers, all that kind of stuff, that we should expect that God might actually answer that prayer. Yeah. Is it like a Christian word that means holistic? Or is it an equivalent of, shall we say? Well, holistic just, well, that's the Greek, it's Greek, so Greek, Greek's the language of the Bible, so there you go. But yeah, it, it's, it's all encompassing. The gospel is for the whole person. And this is why, again, I have a big problem with non-sacramental forms of Christianity. Because it says, you know, there, it's just what's in your head that counts. And it's of, almost like my body doesn't matter. Now, I know that if you speak to non-Christians of that sort, they won't actually 
believe that our bodies are insignificant or that we won't be resurrected and all this sort of stuff, but actually say, well, why are we then denying the way, the, the, um, the principal method by which God brings salvation to our bodies, which is through bodily means? Um, and so again, it's, it's, it's good to be very wary of prosperity gospel and the kind of health, wealth and happiness kind of gospel or, or the false kind of promises of uh, healing and well-being, which are not grounded in God's word. But at the same time, to remember that the gospel is for the whole person and the totality uh, of the person. Now, how Paul could see that he had faith, was this some kind of divine revelation or was it just obvious that this guy was lapping everything up and his eyes were aflame uh, with excitement and, 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 and that we don't know whether maybe he was the one who was shouting, amen, preach it, brother, the loudest or something like that. I don't know. We're not told. But either way, he saw that he had faith to be made well. And, and there's this language of that. There's a real language of authority. He looked intently and he saw. Not that he noticed him and he kind of thought that there might be a chance. So he's been given this, you know, this is an authoritative position and he said in a loud voice, can't be mistaken and can't be missed and is for public consumption, stand upright on your feet, a thing that he had never done. And he sprang up and began walking. How many a mother has wished that their child could learn to walk like that? It would be so many fewer bumps and bruises. But there he did, there he goes. So there is, if you like, the, the miracle is not just that the man, man's legs were healed, but actually somebody who never walked already did. So it was a kind of, it was a really total healing, uh, altogether. And that impressed the crowds, funny enough. And again, you know, we're talking about cities here, but these cities were very small things. I mean, I live in, in a fair, in a, in a town with, I think the fairum itself, fair and proper has something like 50, 60,000 people in it. And I, if I go to town, I'm bound to see somebody I recognize, at least by face. These, these cities often had, you know, fewer than 10,000 people. And the guy with, who sits there, whose legs don't work, everybody would recognize, you know, he's, it's, it's the same guy in the same place every time. And having no notions of the Bible, they, they draw, the pagan conclusion, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. If anybody here, I mean, this is a great irony here. There might have been quite a few people there who thought, you know, all those stories of Zeus and Apollos and all those things, you know, so, mm, sounds a bit dodgy, you know, you know, maybe fairy tales. And now Paul performs this miracle, or God performs a miracle through Paul, and it makes them believe in the gods of, <laughs> of the pagans <laughs> in the first instance. It creates faith in something completely the wrong, completely the wrong thing. Zeus and Hermes. Um, Hermes being, how, how's your Greek Greek mythology? With Hermes? Well, Hermes was a messenger yeah. god, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a messenger. So Zeus was Barnabas, a Barnabas gets to be the chief god because he's the silent one or quieter one, and then the guy who does all the talking is the messenger. Um, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to sacrifice with the crowds. So now we learn we, where we actually are. We're actually the city gates. So he wasn't just preaching in the street corner. He was actually preaching at the place where everybody comes in and out. Is that more or less embarrassing? Um, the city gates was, um, it was quite an important place in Jewish places, wasn't it? You wanted to in the ancient have world a meeting. Generally. 
with the elders. It would be at the city gates. Because it's the most, it's the place where people come and go. It's the most kind of public place. If you don't, uh, it's either, you know, the city square or the city gates are the sort of place where people gather. And, and there's traffic. And, you know, we, we, we see, for example, the healing of uh, Bartimaeus happens just outside uh, Jericho. Again, it's the sort of place, you know, we, you, where you have heavier footfall. It maybe it's modern day equivalent would be the entry, you know, the main entrance to the shopping center. I don't know. Um, but you see that they all spring into action. They hear and they see and they draw the right conclusion, provided that their presumptions and uh, presuppositions are correct, uh, which they're not. And the priest of Zeus, uh, even comes, comes along, uh, ready to bring oxen and garlands. And oxen, remember, oxen, you do know, is a plural in, in the English language. So this is, this is a proper expensive thing that they're going to do. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of a couple of BMWs and a Mercedes being brought along here to be, to be torched, not just, you know, not just your old bicycle from the shed. And, uh, Paul and Bible, you could just see them saying, what earth is going on here? They remember they're speaking, uh, the local language, uh, again, which I, I don't know uh, very mu- much about it. There is apparently there's some suggestion that the original population, uh, of, um, of this, uh, <clears throat> uh, Liconia, is, is, uh, from Crete. But it's whether it's related to Greek or not. But the, the again, you know, the, you could see they're kind of saying, "What on earth is going on?" Everybody's running around and making a lot of noise and things. And then the priest comes along and said, "And and and they finally cotton onto what's going on." And they tore their garments. What's that? That's a sign of mourning, isn't it? Uh, mourning or shock or revulsion. Very Jewish thing to do. It is. It's the sort of thing. It's the thing that the high priest did when uh, Jesus uh, implied that he was the son of God. It's going to be you're so so horrified that it's like somebody. You know, it's like some something died. It's a really dramatic gesture of very violent emotion. They tore their garments and rushed into the out into the crowd. You can see, just just try to picture this scene. They kind of go, stop, 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 you know, waving their arms around. Don't do that, you know, put those oxen back in the stall quickly. And this turns into his this mini-sermon. And what's the essence of this mini-sermon? Well, this is the sermon to, you know, a, the sermon to the Gentiles. So I think Ray was uh, commenting on so that we hadn't had one yet. Here, here, here's the first one. And tell me about what, what, how would you summarize the, the kind of key point of this particular sermon? Uh, the, the one true God for beginners. Uh, I, I want you to say a bit more than that. It's for somebody who uh, hasn't read it yet. You're right. Of course. Uh, but it's basically not, not, don't worship your false gods, worship the God of all creation and actually get blessed you with all good things. Right, so he's, he's talking about the, the contrast between living God and these vain or worthless things. What was also interesting, the way he basically insults their, their uh, religion. Yeah, he uh, does. Is it if you are so careful, you know, that, well. that, you know, vain, this is vain and empty. And so it doesn't uh, mince his words. 
No, and again, there's, and, and here's the, you know, the priest of Zeus is there with his oxen, his two or three, at least two oxen, maybe more, and he's ready to go, make the big splash, and he calls these things, these vain things. He's not very, Paul's not being at all appreciative of, of their, of their kind of good intentions. Not very diplomatic. <laughs> no, no, but again, there's an emergency. They're about to take a work of God, and turn it into an occasion for false worship of vain things, gods that aren't gods. Mm. And what could be a worse thing than misattributing God's work to something that isn't a God? Mm. And so he really, they, he kind of goes in there, this is an emergency, there's no time for niceties and say, let's talk about this and see if we can come to an understanding. There's no, no kind of, one. yeah, there's no kind of, let's try and shift your, shift your horizon. So you see, you know, and that, all that kind of business that is, is quite common in, in, in some modern parlance. No, oh. no, the truth. Know the truth. These things are, don't exist. They're worthless. They're, they're, they're empty. They're, they're vain. Um, you need to turn to the living God. And he speaks in very general terms as God who is the creator of all things. The creator of all things, um, who is that, you know, in the past allowed the nations, which is, I mean, whether you translated nations or Gentiles, it's just translator's choice because that's the word. It means the same thing. Gentiles is just an English. It's one of those things where English makes things a little bit more complicated by having, uh, taking the um, Latin word for nations and using a specific term for Gentiles in that narrow sense. But yeah, the, 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 the Hebrew notion of Nagoyim, the Goyim, the Goyim, the, the nations, the non, everybody but the Jews, everybody but the Israelites. He allowed them to walk in their own ways. But he said, and here's a wonderful little doctrine of creation. He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And that's basically a mashup of Sermon on the Mount and and a couple of different psalms, isn't it? I think it's, it's like a sort of almost a dry run for his Sermon in Athens, isn't it? Yeah, except that he's not planning his Sermon on, in Athens yet. Yeah, uh, but still, yeah. but there's still issues involved. And so his his point again is he's 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 starting from way further back than he did in the synagogue. You need to just first recognize who this God is. He hasn't he doesn't get as far as Jesus. Just to look, you know. Zeus is ain't it. There's his creator of heaven and earth, and you haven't. He's let you live. He's left you alone until now, but even then, you see that good thing comes from it. So he's trying to take their eyes off their gods who aren't gods and place them onto the God who is God, and said even with these words, they were scarcely restraining the people from offering sacrifice to them. So he's basically trying to protest: we are not gods. There is a God. But they're so amazed that even then they say, no, really, 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 I think you're gods. Like, no, no, we really aren't. And the gods that you think of as gods aren't. And so you think this is a, this is, this looks like a fantastic moment of breakthrough for the gospel, right? This is going to go well. Now they got everybody's attention. But again, this shows just how capricious the human heart is when he hears the gospel. Everybody's amazed. Doesn't mean that everybody and, and impressed doesn't mean that they're therefore ready to believe the gospel. 
you know, being impressive is not really a good thing. I mean, remember when Jesus goes to the land of the Gerasenes or Gadarenes, depending on how, how you, um, which version of the text you follow, but, uh, with Legion and the 3000 pigs, uh, the, the pigs that, um, uh, run off the cliff and people come and they see this and they see the uh, formerly demon possessed man sitting in his right mind and dressed, you know, hair combed and teeth brushed and everything. And what's their reaction? They please go. Say, please go away. We don't want any of this. Now they might have been a bit cheesed off about their their pigs as well. Fair enough. But they are. They were afraid, and they asked him to leave. Not because they didn't believe what had happened, but because of what had happened. And again, for the umpteenth time, we don't measure success by human standards and by human reactions we measure success by faith in the gospel which is always going to be a minority phenomenon the gospel divides and many people reject it and a lot of people will get attracted to the uh, peripheral phenomena that surround the gospel but never get drawn into the gospel and one of the jobs the church should do if you ask me is to try and minimize those distractions. You know, the human heart's already sufficiently, you know, over, over interested in the, on, in the, in the whiz bangs of, of, of life. And the church should not add to that temptation by couching the gospel in, in, in lots of whiz bangery, which will distract people even further. I mean, one very practical way in which this was played out at the Reformation, for example, was the baptism service. There are, uh, Martin Luther himself, uh, drafted two versions of the baptism service in the first half of the 1520s when he was translated into German. He, the first one, he more or less took the existing baptismal service and translated it into German and published it. A couple of years later, he went back to it and this time he put some, put thought into what a baptism service should look like and published that. And, the end result was that the baptism service was, the second baptism service was considerably curtailed. Because in the traditional med- late medieval baptism service, you would have all sorts of things to communicate visually what was happening in baptism. So you would have salt sprinkled. You would have the priest blow into the face of the child uh, you would have garments, you would have candles, you'd have all sorts of things like that. And what Luther came to conclude was that you had so many different symbolic actions that the water just seemed like one amongst many. You kind of got there, you got salt, you got blowing, you got candles, you got garments, you got water, you got the, you know, and the, you, the actual baptism kind of vanished into this otherwise very, you know, uh, in in itself kind of perfectly understandable and 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 perhaps even in some ways salutary uh visual language if the whole thing's in latin people don't speak latin so when you say in latin you know receive the holy spirit you blow on the child and there's ah you know this is the spirit entry whatever but it accidentally drowned out the baptism so the second baptism service he got rid of the lot so there's a lot of word of god and water and that was it <laughs> those are the actions hear the word of god pray Baptize the child, pray some more, go home. No candles, no salt, no blowing, no nothing. Um, 
and that was again, you know, that was a kind of very practical way in which to take away things that distract away from the gospel, however good they are in themselves. You know, if people come to your church for the coffee, or for the choir, or for the band, or for the architecture, well, that's all very nice. But, but there is always the danger that they, the thing that gets them in is what keeps them in. And if, if somebody smashes in your stained glass window, they won't come back. They'll go to the next church that has good stained glass window. If your band suddenly loses their drummer and, and the next drummer's rubbish or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's always, you know, you want people to come for the gospel and stay for the gospel. And everything else should be drawing your attention to the gospel rather than away from it. The horse is not dead, but I think I'll stop flogging it at this point. <laughs> Any other thoughts about this this story so far? It's interesting that it refers to plural apostles, uh, mm. Barnabas and, and Paul. And Barnabas wasn't really, was he? And also early on in the earlier in the start of the chapter. Yes. Um, again, the, the, I have to say, I mean, it's one of the it's a, a broader feature of the Bible. Uh, the Bible was not written by professors of systematic theology, which is a really good thing in many ways. But one of the things is that it often uses terminology less precisely than um, than we would like to uh, for our systematic, you know, for our systematic purposes. It would be really nice, for example, if the gospel always meant one thing and no one thing only. And the, you know, so we could say gospel always is, you know, we can look up all the places where the word gospel appears and say, okay, there you go, that's the gospel. And of course, it's not always used in that way. Sometimes if you read the Old Testament in English and you say it comes, you come across the word law all the time. But very often when the word, when the English translation says law, systematically speaking, we actually talk about, when we talk about the law gospel distinction, we actually talk about the gospel. It's just that the word Torah, which means instruction, is often translated as law. And it doesn't mean commandment, it means promise. Because the promises of God are also in the Torah. And so the Bible often does use words in that kind of a slightly loose way. The word prophet doesn't always mean the one one and the same thing. And likewise with the word apostle. So apostle, I mean, there isn't a really good English word for it. Uh, the the kind of the nearest English equivalent is a Latin word, which is emissary, and uh, which is somebody who's been sent as a representative of somebody. Or another Latin word would be plenipotentiary, somebody who's kind of authorized in the place to act in in the person of another. Which is what, like, you know, absolution, private absolution is about that, you know, you are, you know, the, 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 the confessor acts in the place with the full authority of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I forgive you all sins. And so the word apostle is, you know, they had been sent by the church. So it's almost like the, the word apostle here is being used in the word, in the sense that we use the word missionary, which of course is a Latin word that which means sent, which is what the Greek word apostle also means. Somebody who's sent. So we kind of get into this a bit of a language suit, part, partly because so much of the Christian terminology in the Bibles and the key Christian terminology is never translated, but it's transliterated. So the word baptism in Greek is an ordinary word. But in English, it's a very specific technical term because the word baptism, the baptisma, the Greek word, was never translated into English. It was simply transliterated first into Latin and then from Latin into English. So we end up with this technical term. It just means to make something wet. And occasionally, just once or twice in the New Testament, it's translated as washing. And the word is actually baptism. When the Pharisees, they wash pots and pans and dining couches, that's actually baptism. 
Yeah. Which is, by the way, my slam dunk argument against claiming that baptism must always be done by full immersion because I refuse to believe that every Pharisee fully immersed their downing couches every time they came. You know. Should it be slam dunk or slam wipe? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good point. Slam, slam, slam sprinkle. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, it's that's, I, I think the, again, with the, when they use the word apostle here, we shouldn't automatically assume that it's apostle in the same sense that Jesus meant the 12 apostles. These are the guys who were, had been sent. Or the poor, and, and I personally don't get particularly exercised by, you know, this, I remember reading an article years and years and years ago about did the apostles make, did the 11 apostles make a mistake when they appointed Matthias as the 12th apostle when clearly Jesus had Paul in mind? <laughs> well, that's, 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 that's a nice speculation that we can, we can, we can discuss with Matthias when we, when we see him in the kingdom to come. But, um, again, the point is that whether or not we count Paul among the 12 or not is kind of irrelevant. He was called by God by Jesus himself and whether he's one of the 12 or not is not really the, the big deal. You know, the, the, whoever, you know, whoever is called by God directly or indirectly is called by God. Well, Paul has called himself the least of all apostles, but still is yeah. an apostle. And he also refers to various other people as apostles and fellow apostles and things who are clearly he's not referring to the 12. Uh, but the 12 are, have a particular role as the eyewitnesses of all things from the beginning until the resurrection. Yeah. Should we read the last bit? We are, we're making good progress here. Welcome back, Barbara. Well, I can read. Thank you. Uh, uh, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded uh, the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the cities, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas uh, to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders uh, to them uh, in every church, uh, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had um, spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had uh, been commanded to the grace of God for the work that they had uh, fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Okay, thank you. So let's have a look at the map again, just so you get the, uh, literally get the, uh, the picture. So they were in Lystra and people came all the way. I mean, you, you can see the scale down there, uh, bottom left hand corner. So just, you know, by a rough estimate, it's over a hundred miles from Antioch to Iconium and to Lystra. And they bothered to send people all the way from there, uh, <clears throat> to chase after, uh, Paul and Barnabas. And they went on to Derby and then back again and all the way back, uh, uh, all the way back to, um, 
and this map, the, the arrows are slightly misleading because it, it, they, they skip the Perga. So they went to Perga, uh, and then from Perga to Atalia. So they came down, if you like, down the blue arrow, then to Atalia, and then back again, uh, to, uh, Antioch. So that's, that's the, the, the remaining, uh, journey. And do note, that they really did went to go to some effort these opponents to uh, to uh, get the word out. So, can you remember what happened in Antioch? How did the mission in Antioch end? Which Antioch? The Pisidian Antioch, presumably. Yes. Not well, was it? But specifically, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to be they, a little difficult now. Was that the one that they were driven out of and they shook the dust off their feet? That's the one, yeah. So they were expelled. Um, they were expelled from uh, Antioch. Then at Iconium, how did that end? Fled. <laughs> because there, there was a threat of being stoned. They were about to be stoned in, in Iconium. Yeah. Then they go to Lystra and... They were stoned. They were stoned. So you can see the thing gets it's been ramp is ramping up, and so we go from uh, expulsion to threat of stoning to actual stoning. Um, now, isn't this amazing? Again, there is a there's a real kind of Jesus echoes of uh, Jesus' life here. Uh, at least in my mind, it there seems to be a kind of a uh, Palm Sunday versus Good Friday vibe going on here. The crowds, first they want to sacrifice and worship to these guys, and next thing they're stoning them. You see the crowd turning. Now, I have a couple of uh, colleagues who get very cross every year when we sing My uh, uh, my Song is Love Unknown. Said, it wasn't the same crowd. It wasn't the same crowd. I don't care. <laughs> the point is that you've got, uh, you know, you Jesus' ministry takes a, a very quick turn from crowd shouting Hosanna to crowd shouting crucified. And whether it was, you know, whether Bob was in both crowds or whether he was in one and not the other isn't really the point. And maybe there are some people at uh, Lystra as well who weren't, you know, were, were amazed but didn't start throwing stones. But nevertheless, we've got this turning of the crowd. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds of whatever... Presumably these people are bad people. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. And this wasn't just a couple of pebbles in his face. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever seen, I hope you haven't, but if you've ever seen any depictions, uh, or at least, uh, fictional depictions of stoning, but you can picture it if you, if you choose. Uh, it's pretty brutal stuff. You know, you throw stones until somebody dies and, you know, you choose your stones accordingly. So Paul was a little bit worse for wear by the end of this. He was properly knocked out. Badly enough, they thought he was dead. And they dragged him outside the city. And they, see, they said not only did they do this. Note, it was done without any... It was a pure kangaroo court. It was a, a, a riot, essentially. And he was lynched. What did these people... What was said to them to turn... This mob that was about to sacrifice to God, Paul as a god into a lynch mob. 
I mean, the, the understatement of Luke's narrative is, is astounding. They persuaded the crowds that these people deserve to die. What's the last thing they did? Somebody was healed. They healed this chap who'd been. I mean, what on earth could, what on earth could they have said? And we can only, we can only fill in the blanks. Well, I suppose they could, they could, like the Pharisees accused Jesus, Jesus miracles of being done by Beelzebub, they could have used the same, same lies about Paul. Um, yeah, I mean, some, something, something very strange is going on. And we're, we're not told, so we can speculate in different ways. But we see again the, the depth uh, of the hostility. That we're better off with these people dead than carrying on, even if they heal people. We need them dead. And I am fairly persuaded. I mean, they can't have, the Jews can't have got, come to uh, a pagan crowd like this and persuade them that these people are breaking the law of God and therefore they must die because that's kind of not the, the point. But here we have, again, in the, in the other Jesus-like thing, here you have Jewish people persuading pagans to kill somebody. Does that ring any bells? Christ himself. Very Pontius Pilate kind of stuff, isn't it? So we see that Paul is entering very much into the experience of Jesus growing hostility until his own people come and stir up a crowd to kill him, stir up Gentiles to kill him. And so when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, and then, well, what did he say to, what did he say to Ananias when he told Ananias, go and speak to, go and speak to Paul? What must he tell him? He was told to tell him of all the things he must suffer. Yeah. How much he must suffer for my, for my sake. And here we go. He wasn't kidding. It took a while, but here we are. He's suffering all right. And it's this sort of following Jesus, imitating Jesus. I mean, when Paul speaks into the Galatians, that I bear in my body the marks of Christ, or I fill up in my body, you know, whatever, you know, in my, whatever is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I mean, he, he wasn't metaphorical, really wasn't. And he didn't need to have any kind of supernatural stigmata to have the mark of Christ and of Christ suffering. He was just quite, he, he had enough perfectly explicable bruises and, and scars in his body to, you know, his, he would have been, you know, if he wasn't permanently, if he was permanently disfigured by this experience, he wouldn't be a surprise at all. Yeah, well, he'd had, he'd been scourged as well, hadn't he? So well, he would have been later on, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that's kind of where we see the, as, as the gospel advances, so does opposition heat up. And this is very much, you speak to anybody who's worked in, in sort of, uh, sort of pioneering mission fields. This is genuinely speaking the impression, uh, the, the experience there as well. And when I was a teenager, I remember my parents always, when, when a new church opened, they always got really nervous and said, well, now we're going to, let's see where, you know, where the devil's going to fire his arrows next. You always knew that when the gospel advanced, there was going to be trouble. And there always was. And often, sometimes this trouble, it devours and destroys, humanly speaking, uh, the faithful messengers of God. But it doesn't stop the gospel advancing. And if nothing else, what it does, it reminds, reminds the apostle that it's not his mission. It's not about him. And just as they rejected his master, they will also reject his disciples, as Jesus had promised.
to suffer with Jesus is better than to enjoy peace and quiet without him. Um, <clears throat> verse 20, straight out of a cartoon. When the disciples gathered about Jesus, uh, Paul, who they thought was dead, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went up. So he just got up and walked straight back in. <laughs> it's, it's very, very much a kind of uh, Bugs Bunny sort of situation, isn't it? Get up and you know, you know, put your head back on, and and off you go and walk back in. And then they went into Derby, preached the gospel to that city without incident, seemingly made many disciples. They returned to Lystra uh, and to Iconium and to Antioch. Is that what you would do? <laughs> Possibly not. <laughs> Why not? Uh, well, obviously, Paul wasn't thinking of his own safety. He was thinking of his mission. So uh... He was very much going back. He was thinking about the church. And he went right back to the places where he had been driven out, threatened with stoning and stoned. We're in that reverse order. By the way, this making disciples is precisely exactly the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew's gospel. Go make disciples of all nations, which in Greek is a single word. <clears throat> you know, I don't know, disciplify or something. Um, <laughs> one of my pet peeves here, this is just a little pet peeve. Pet peeve moment, warning, put the flag up. Here comes pet peeve, uh, is when people talk about discipling. Uh, I seriously, I have a, I have a serious allergy, um, no offense to any Americans present, but I have serious allergy to the turning of verbs into, uh, nouns into verbs in the first place. Books are written, they're not authored, um, and so on. And, uh, and, and so I, I don't like dis discipling as a, as a word, but also because it has the, it's being used in a very non-biblical way. The word disciple, if, if it does exist, is to make disciples, which is a reference to taking unbelievers and, and baptizing teaching them. That's what you, how Jesus used it. It's not, and if we talk about instructing those who are already Christians to grow in, in the knowledge of God's word, we need, really need to come up with another word like, well, let's use something like catechize, which is the word that has been used for a very, very, very long time. Um, <clears throat> but yes, yeah, so the making disciples, it's not about they went and converted people, but they did what Jesus commanded them to do. So we can presume without anybody telling us that some baptizing and teaching was going on because that's what Jesus said about how, how, how you make disciples. Does anyone want to go? You know, I don't know, Erin, if you want to uh, uh, defend the honor of uh, American ways of speaking or anybody else <laughs> want to come back at that, but that's just a little, little, little sort of uh, thing that bugbear of mine. Disciplification. Disciplification, yes, which is just another way of saying baptize and teach. And they return to, but they, they return to these places, strength, strength, uh, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that, <laughs> and I, I love this, I, I, in the number of times I've stopped at this, what, what would you, how would you finish this sentence if you were doing Paul's kind of job? That through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Encouraging them that, well, hey, we have eternal life now. Sit back and enjoy the ride. Exactly. <laughs> and it's going to be hairy. You're, you're fasten your seatbelt and wear your helmet. Um, it is through many tribulations we, we must enter the kingdom of God. So continue, encourage 
continuing this faith, and it will come with persecution. It will come with tribulation. And any other message is not likely to be quite as close to the truth. <clears throat> and again, this is uh, why I think we should be very careful about leading with the idea that you know, when you if you if you become a Christian, your life will become somehow better. Without qualifying what how we what we mean by better, your life will become infinitely better if you are a Christian, but not in the way that you'd expect, not in the way that anybody else who promises you a better life is. And then they do something very important. They appoint elders. What's the Greek for elder? Presbyter. Presbyter, yeah. Presbyteros. Presbyter. What happens to the word presbyter if you mangle it enough through generations and landed in modern English? In fact, early modern English it becomes priest. The English word priest is a very, very uh, se a, a severe corruption of the word presbyter. So it's not priest as in the Old Testament priest. Then. Well, it's used in that sense in English, but the actual the, the etymology, the root of the English actual word, it's it come from the word presbyter originally, even though its meaning is often. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's often used in that sense. The English doesn't have another word for the Old Testament kind of priest. Yeah, there was a novel Prester John, wasn't there? I don't think I've actually read it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, well, that was a, yeah, that was a medieval kind of, um, um, crusader myth. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, that's, uh, that's where it comes from uh, as a word. The concept obviously is, is what it actually means is another thing. What, who are these elders? What are they? What's their job description? Any idea? Teach and baptize. They're what we would, in 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 the kind of uh, English-speaking Lutheran tradition, would call pastors. Yeah. And the word pastor is is is, is stuck into in in as an English-speaking Lutheranism and, and and some other English-speaking traditions as well. And it's, it's it's a fine word. It's actually very rare in the Bible. The the, the usual word is elder. Um, for uh, the the leaders of the church, uh, but that's that's maybe a, <clears throat> a discussion for another time. But again, the, the, this is important that they don't just say, "Here's the church, and here's some things to do as a church, and do as you wish." They appoint elders. Uh, in our church, uh, we have a system of calling, so the congregation calls a pastor for itself. Nobody gets to appoint one and nobody gets to apply for the job. You just get, you get the call in the post when, when, when somebody wants to. Um, and, uh, that's absolutely fine. But it's very interesting to note that that ever, never ever happens in the New Testament. All the elders, presbyters we ever come across, they are always appointed from above in a very Episcopal sort of way. You try sell that to our church. I think you might, might as well, uh, <laughs> I'm looking for another place, but it's, it's just a, an interesting observation. And they pray and fast again. Prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That's a lovely phrase, isn't it? They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Left them in God's care. What that might sound like, we will learn much later on, uh, when Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. Um, 
uh, in uh, uh, the twentieth um, chapter of of uh, Acts, and we kind of get the verbatim version of what it means to commend people to the Lord in whom they have believed. So you see that there is a very strong. I mean, we just talked about the term of the pastoral heart uh, in this mission that they want to, they established churches and they established them in the faith. They they gave them all, you know, when they were leaving them, not knowing whether they would come back, they equipped them with what they needed in order to persist in the faith and and then commended them to God with prayer and fasting. So they really kind of gave of themselves for the welfare of this church. In modern day, you, in missionary work, you never live up to a few weeks. You are there for years and years and years. Um, um, and uh, it's, it's interesting how quickly, well, we don't know the time frame, but it wasn't uh, maybe months that the, the, all this happened. So interesting comparison to modern time missionary work. Yes, uh, that's true. And also then on another contrast to quite a lot of modern mission work that I've come across, at least in the last few decades, is where... The emphasis is, is very much on individual conversion and not on, not on church planting, church building. Uh, there are whole missionary organizations, whole church boys that who, they, what they do is they, they, they do no pastoral training at all. They just do lots of lay leadership training. Um, and what you end up with is churches, churches with, with a lot of, lot of chiefs and not, um, and, um, sometimes a, a, a um, shortage of Indians, as it were. And, and, and so the, the, <clears throat> rather than establishing churches they just go they go and, and 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 establish training programs or establish if like uh, have systems for converting individuals reaching individuals and this kind of church you know that the, the mission work consists of preaching the gospel so that a community may be formed a, a church is formed is is something that's really really important but of course in these places most of these places at least they have people who already know the bible especially in the place where the synagogue they already know the bible and so they are just saying, you know, all the things you believed in have been fulfilled in Jesus. Whereas if you go to somewhere, <clears throat> uh, somewhere where there, there is no knowledge at all. I mean, we don't really know about Lystra enough because we're not being told that. But if, you know, the, if you haven't got enough people there who already know what the scriptures say, you do need a longer time. So when Paul goes to Corinth, for example, he says 18 months, which is a very different sort of thing. And uh, would we assume that since he sent letters to lots of other churches that he would have been writing to these churches as well? Uh, um, quite possibly. Uh, I mean, whether whether he wrote to these particular churches, we, we just don't know. I mean, we know that he, he, um, he, he does see some of these places again, but he didn't necessarily know that at the time. He uh, was a letter-writing person, wasn't he? He was, and, and there, we are, that there are lost letters. There are yeah. before. We know that there's a letter to the Laodiceans, for example, that exists. Mm-hmm. This is referred to in Colossians. Um, and another one to the Corinthians as well. Yeah, there? there's a missing letter to the Corinthians and possibly also some other letters that we don't know about. Um, and, uh, you know, it wouldn't be so, so there's every chance. And again, you know, he, again, he stayed in this space sometime. We're not told how long it is, but long enough. Perhaps to have formed, you know, found the person who, who's really knowledgeable in the scriptures, who's able to take them on from there. Mm. And then they come back, Pisidia, back to Pamphylia, and they are still speaking the word in Perga and Atalia, and they say back to Antioch. And when they get back, 
you know, Antioch, so where they had been commended to the grace of God for work, for the work that they had fulfilled or completed, perhaps is another way to translate it. And so it's a kind of, you know, it's very much the circle has been now uh, closed. And they arrived and they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them. Uh, or through them, if you know, it doesn't mean that they were working, God was with them as well. It means, you know, what God, what God had used them for, if you like. That's, that's the idea of the, with, the, with them. They were instruments of God's work. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. What does that expression mean? Opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Door. It's like the beginning, maybe. You open a door. Well, it's open. To what? To where? What's on the other side of the door? The whole of the rest of the world. Well, salvation. Kingdom. Any other any other offerings we've got? I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just just gathering gathering different suggestions. Door of faith. This is sort of independent from having to become a Jewish proselyte, though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the Gentiles receive the faith without conversion to Judaism. Yes, that's the key point. And that will becomes, I mean, and that becomes the, the key point. You know, this, that's the next question, chapter 15. I would argue that this door of faith is a door not into the world, but out of the world into the promises of Israel, to Israel. So the Gentiles have had a door of faith opened into the covenant of God as Gentiles. Think of the ark. You know, the ark, you know, where, where the chosen family are inside the ark and God closes the door and everybody else perishes. And the everybody else is, if you like, the Gentiles are perishing in their sin. And God has opened the door. There's more room, not in the inn, but in the ark. And so it's like the, the door that the wall that had been closed. And Paul talks about this. He, he sort of develops this idea as his ministry goes on. And in Ephesians, he talks about the wall of hostility separating Jews and Gentiles, which has been broken down. And so these, like, you know, the, there's Israel on the inside and then there's Gentiles on the outside. And faith has opened, you know, there's a door of faith. The door, a door, if you like, that is faith in Jesus into the covenant, into the promises of Israel. And this Romans kind of picks this up, particularly uh, in chapters 9 to 11. You know, that the Gentiles now have access to those things that previously were only accessible to Israelites. Just yesterday I was reading an article about uh, about a, a Christian missionary in Israel working amongst Jews. And uh, she was arguing very strongly against uh, replacement theology, the idea that the church replaces Israel. Israel is no longer the promise, uh, the, the chosen people, but the church in, it takes, it has taken Israel's place. And you can reject replacement theology in a kind of bad sort of way, you know, uh, but it is true. The church hasn't replaced Israel. The church is Israel. And so what's happened is that Israel, if you like, the boundaries of Israel have grown to encompass all those who believe in Jesus, because Jesus is the true Israelite. As all who are in Christ are now Israelites. 
without having to become Jewish. So you have the inherit the promises to Abraham, which he received before circumcision. And that's kind of Paul's big, big argument in Galatians. That before he was circumcised, God made promise to Abraham, which will be a blessing for all nations. And now we can become heirs of the promises to Abraham without circumcision, without becoming Jewish. We can be Israelites without being Jewish. And just as a little footnote to that, the term Jewish, only in a Jewish and Jew, appears very, very, very late in the Old Testament. It's it's really based, it, originally, you know, it, you have all these words for, uh, the, um, you know, you have Israel and Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and you've got Judeans, i.e. the members of the southern kingdom of Judah, Benjamin, and, and the Levites. And that then kind of becomes after the uh, after the exile, so in the sixth century BC and 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 fifth century, it kind of beca- then becomes a word Jew, which ceases to mean Judean as opposed to Northern Israelite, and it kind of just comes to mean anybody who believes this stuff. So Jewish is not the same thing as Israelite. Abraham was never Jewish. Moses was never Jewish. David was never Jewish. Judaism is a later development. And so we can say we are Israelites without being Jewish. And that's kind of the point of the New Testament, actually. Leave. Hope that won't put you off your night's sleep now you think about that. Brings us to the end of our chapter. And more or less to the end of it. We're doing quite well here. We've done a whole chapter again. I do remember, I think Erin used it early on, that it would be nice if we kind of keep moving at a steady pace. So I think we're doing all right on that front at the moment. We've had some slower weeks, but this has been good. Any 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 final thoughts, questions, comments, anything at all that you'd like to um, talk about before we close? Anybody? No? How disappointing. Well, next time we will travel south from Antioch to Jerusalem and deal with this whole question of the inclusion of Gentiles with regard to the law of God. Um, I doubt we'll get through the whole chapter in one go. There's a lot in there. But uh, again, if you read ahead a little bit, uh, that will obviously uh, uh, help us. It might be of interest to you if you have, if you own the Lutheran Study Bible, uh, there is an article in in the middle of chapter fifteen on conflict among Christians. Kind of takes the uh, takes the opportunity to talk about how how Christians uh, uh, might deal with conflict. It might be of interest to you as well. Um, if you haven't got a Lutheran study Bible um, and you're feeling wealthy, get one. <laughs> They're not cheap, I'm afraid. But let's close with prayer now. Father, we thank you that your word. Is powerful to do amazing things that your word created the world and all things in it, including ourselves. Thank you that it's able to heal and to restore creation. And above all, for the greatest gift of all, which is the creation of faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us always to keep our eyes focused on him, not to be distracted from the gospel, not to be afraid uh, of the world's hostility or in love with the praise of people but rather faithfully follow Jesus wherever he leads us including tribulation so that we might share with all your saints the joy of the world to come as 
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.